We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. Inside of a month are we of opening day for the Nationals, April 1st against the New York Mets at Nationals Park, where there may well be no fans. We'll get into that in just a bit, but we have lots of Nats news to get into, including a conversation with Mr. National, Ryan Zimmerman, along with Nats Insider, Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. And, you know, we taped the Zimmerman interview. During that taping, Mark actually tried to pick a fight with Zim over analytics, which I thought was really unbecoming of you, Mark. But anyway, how are you? I'm doing fine, Al. And as you'll hear in the interview, this is one of those, you know, unfortunately, you can't see our faces as you're listening to this. We are all doing this where we can see our faces. And as soon as you asked Zim a question about analytics, I just started smiling (laughs) because I've heard him field that question before, and I know his thoughts on it on and off the record. And so I, I kind of got a little kick out of that. You, you guys will enjoy it at the end of the show. Yeah, I got to hear the Zimmerman take, the Zimmerman opus on Sabermetrics. Uh, so it was a lot of fun, though. Zimmerman was outstanding. We did a lot of, like, looking back with Zimmerman, too. I, I think people by now are up to date with all the baseball-y stuff for 2021 with Zim. But, you know, some good stuff on how close he came to actually wanting to leave the Nats during the bad days of the Nationals franchise how he's doing in terms of now being a full-time first baseman, which he has been actually for longer than people may think, and all kinds of things with Zim. You know, having won a World Series, how close he came to maybe calling it a career uh, with sitting out the 2020 season. So lots of good stuff with Zimmerman. You'll get to that. You'll hear that in just a bit. Some items of business here on the Nats Chat Podcast. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat uh, for advertising inquiries. You can email the mastermind of all of this. He is the Billy Bean of the Nats Chat Podcast. Tim Shovers, the email address Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. We're off to a very good start when it comes to you guys subscribing and spreading the word about the podcast. We want to thank you very much for that. And Mark, and I'm not sure what this means, but we want to thank Chesapeake, Virginia, which is responsible for the second most downloads of this podcast so far. Chesapeake, Virginia. Okay. Um, do any of us have family down there? What, what, what's question. going on there? Not that I'm aware of. Apparently, it's a Nats town, and that's great. That, that I, I love to hear that. I, I think I, I will say, I mean, we joke about this, but I will say from having covered this team long enough and having interacted with enough fans that there really are Nationals fans literally around the world. I've heard from so many of them from so many different places. They have some connection to D.C., either from the past or more recently. And especially nowadays, it's so much easier to follow a team from anywhere. And this is a great way for it to do it as well through our podcast because it's available anywhere. This fan base has reach. This is not just a, a local 
team. There are people all around the world, and apparently a lot of them in Chesapeake, Virginia, that love the Nats. We love it. So a salute to Chesapeake, Virginia here on Nats Chat. So there was very significant Nationals news on Wednesday, and we hope it doesn't mean anything lasting, but it clearly was something significant. And it was actually a question from Mark Zuckerman to Davey Martinez during a Zoom press conference that prompted this reveal. But it turns out that John Lester has flown to New York to have surgery to remove his thyroid gland. And what that means in terms of availability, we're not 100% sure right now. But Mark, what can you tell us? Well, let's start with the good part of it, which is, at least according to Davey Martinez, that as long as everything goes the way it's supposed to, and the surgery would be Friday in New York, they expect that he can be back in West Palm Beach and actually pitching in about a week. We've known he's had it. We're waiting for some other results to come through. Uh, Talked to the doctor uh, yesterday, and um, he wants to go ahead and have it removed, which we we all agree was a good thing for him. That caught me by surprise. That doesn't seem like something you would come back quickly from, but I'm not an expert in thyroid surgery. I know it is. It's a fairly routine procedure that a lot of people have done. And if it's done well and if there are no setbacks and and no other issues with it, it is the kind of thing that really has no long-lasting effects other than you take some medication uh, to make up for the, the hormone that you're no longer getting. But you know, when he, he revealed it, it did raise a little bit of a red flag, and, and here's why. If this was anyone else, you wouldn't think that much of it. But for those who don't know John Lester's backstory, in 2006, when he was still coming up with the Red Sox, he was diagnosed with lymphoma. He had chemotherapy, went through the full treatment of it, came back in the middle of 2007, and actually helped lead the Red Sox to a World Series title. And if I remember right, I think he was actually the starting pitcher for their clinching game at Coors Field when they won the 2007 World Series. Really inspiring story. He's devoted his life ever since then to cancer research, especially uh, with children's cancer cases, just really using his experience to help shed a lot more of information on the subject. And so when you hear thyroid and know that in some cases, but not in all, a thyroid may have to be removed because cancer was found there. Now, we don't know that that was the case. Davey made it sound like they ran some tests, and this is what they ultimately decided to do. He sounded encouraged. He said Lester sounded encouraged, and if they really believe he's coming back within a week, that would seem to be a good sign. But because of his history, I do think you, it does kind of you know, raise a little bit of a red flag there that you wouldn't have with others, and you just hope that it's not any kind of form of cancer and that this is something that he gets over very quickly. Yes, and not that I'm an oncologist, but we do know that chemotherapy can cause hyperthyroidism, so I suppose that's maybe a possibility here. It's also possible this has nothing to do with the cancer, so uh, we don't know, but we obviously wish John Lester the best, and I think one thing we can say with certainty is John Lester is as tough as they come here. The extent to which he has been durable in his career really is amazing. Up until 2020, he'd made at least 31 starts in each of 12 consecutive regular seasons. Last year, the shortened season, he made the equivalent of 32 starts in making 12 starts. He never misses time. So we know if he can pitch, he'll be out there. And he is determined to, uh, even before any of this, I mean, that is his calling card. He wants to be the guy that his teammates can count on taking the ball. He knows he's not a a seven-inning guy every time he takes the mound anymore at this point in his career, but he wants to know that they can count on him to take the ball, especially in big games down the stretch. And so from the little bit that I've started to get to know him uh, since they signed him and from what I know about him in his past, this is a guy who's not going to let anything 
stand in his way of doing the job that he's being paid to do. And and you hope that, uh, you know, everything that comes out of this will allow him to actually go do that now. Yeah, no doubt. He also is one of the great postseason pitchers of his generation. Three World Series titles, career 251 playoff year ERA and 154 innings. He was the MVP of the 2016 NLCS with the Cubs. Like you talk about like the best playoff pitchers the last, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I mean, certainly Madison Bumgarner. Certainly Steven Strasburg, but John Lester's on that list. Like, this guy's got some real chops. And that was a big reason why they signed him. I mean, you know, remember, he's not number one, number two starter in a rotation, John Lester, anymore. He's number four, maybe even number five. We'll see how it plays out. But the Nats knew that what they needed from him was, like I said, take the ball every fifth day and give him a chance. But really what they wanted was when it comes sometime later in September or even in October, when they need a quality start, a guy to give him a chance to win a really, really big game, he is a guy they're going to want on the mound along with the three big horses they already have. And so I, it's among the reasons that I felt all along like he was a really good fit for them when they went and got him. Yeah, and it's an ultra-cheap contract, too. One year, $5 million. I mean, certainly hard to go wrong with something like that. Although I love this detail about the contract. This is beautiful. There's deferred money in the contract. It's a $5 million <laughs> deal for one season. $2 million paid in 2021. $3 million paid in 2023 via a deferred signing bonus. Only this team would do deferred money in a one-year $5 million deal. That that, that was the best part of this offseason, I think. Learner's going to learn her. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the best. All right, well, get well soon, John Lester, clearly. And uh, like we said, the guy is as tough as they come. So uh, he's going to overcome whatever it is exactly he's dealing with here. So the Nats did play on Wednesday. It was an 8-5 loss to the Miami Marlins. In a lot of ways, the less said about this game, the better. It was uh, long. It was painful. But there are a few things to chew on from this. And the first thing, I guess, would be this. The Nats lineup was looking like what the Nats lineup we expect uh, to be come the start of the regular season. Victor Robles batting first. Juan Soto making his spring debut in the two-spot then you went Trey Turner, you went Josh Bell, you went Kyle Schwarber, you went Starling Castro. So Soto was out there, top six was what we expected to be, and Bell and Schwarber both going deep. Clearly, it's what the Nats hope is a sign of things to come. We called this one, didn't we? A few days ago, this was the lineup we yes. wanted to see. I'm not going to read a whole lot into the, what the results were, but it, it's interesting to see that Davey Martinez certainly is considering this. I think this is his preferred look if everything goes right. As we've said all along, it really hinges on Victor Robles being able to get on base at the top of the lineup. He got hit by a pitch today. As, as I said the other day, this is a big part of his game. It went off his uh, left forearm, I guess it was, right off his padding. He came out of the game, but it was his third at bat. He was going to be coming out anyway, so I, I don't think it's anything that they were concerned about. It's not like he came out prematurely, anything like that. But Soto hitting second, Turner behind him, and I asked Juan about that idea, and he seems to like it, and, and, and he even had a great quote. They said, you know, this guy led the league in intentional walks last year, which, of course, other teams are going to do because as Drupal Cabrera hit behind him more than anybody else, why wouldn't you intentionally walk him? Well, if he's going to have Turner, Bell, and Schwarber behind him now, either they're going to walk him or they're going to have to face him. And, and he said, hey, if they want to walk me, go ahead and walk me. I got protection now. Those guys are here to do their job. He's more than happy to do it. As we know, he will not expand his strike zone. He will take his walks. Let's see how this plays out. But I think there is some real potential there for this to work. Yeah, I mean, of course, so much of it is predicated on Schwarber and Bell bouncing back. But if they do, like if you get, especially like 2019 Josh Bell, that's a really nice 
middle of the lineup, certainly. And if Robles does take that next step forward as a hitter, that is a very serviceable lineup that the Nats have. So, I mean, there are definite ifs there, which is part of the problem. But there's also, I think, a realistic path by which this offense ends up being what the Nats want it to be. There are two sure things in this lineup, Turner and Soto. Three sure things, because Starlin Castro, you know what you're getting from him at this point in his career. But all those other guys could go a lot of different directions. Robles, as we said, go different directions. Bell and Schwarber could be great, or if they're 2020 version, it's a problem. This team's in real trouble if those guys are back to that level. Carter Kaboom, who we have, I know we're going to get to here shortly. What are they going to get from him? So there's a lot of variables. As we said, a lot of uh, aspects of this team could go in one of two different directions. But you can certainly see the potential there. And if guys, Mike Rizzo loves to talk about the back of the baseball card and believing that guys will ultimately live up to what their career shows they are. And for the most part, Bell and Schwarber and their careers are better than what we saw last year. Robles still has a lot of potential. They believe he will be what they've always thought he would be. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, it'll be curious to see you know how they adjust and what other attempts they can make um, because there's not a whole lot of real feasible alternatives there. One day, I would like for someone to say to Rizzo, can you just update that phrase and just make it, you are what your baseballreference.com page says you are, instead of you are what the back of the baseball card says you are. I feel like that's kind of dated at this point. we got to update that a little bit. Cards are still popular. A lot of, my, my son loves baseball cards. He's only nine years oh, old. Oh, he collects cards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's still right. a thing. It's still a thing. All right. All right. We'll, we'll go with that then. All right. The, the other kind of notable thing from Wednesday would be that Eric Fetty made a second start already. And uh, it was another one of these rough outings for him. I mean, it's only one inning of work. You know, you try not to overreact to anything you see in Grapefruit League play, but he gives up a three-run bomb in the uh, top of the first against the Miami Marlins, allows four consecutive Marlins to reach base with one out. Fetty went double, walk, three-run homer by Adam Duvall and single in succession. Uh, clearly not the spring start that Fetty wants as he tries to fight for the five spot in the rotation. No, it was weird that he was starting again already today. I mean, he was on two days rest. That's unheard of. Now, I mean, he only threw 28 pitches on Sunday. He wasn't originally scheduled to throw today. This was supposed to be a bullpen game, and then Lester was supposed to start Thursday. But the Lester situation changed things. Davey tried to explain what was going on with Fetty. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. We didn't really get that deep into it because obviously the Lester story was the bigger deal. But if you're going to get those two opportunities before pretty much anybody else in the rotation has gotten a chance, then you better make the most of it. And and unfortunately, he hasn't. He went to the cutter again. I know they like that adjustment that he's making. But if there's anybody out of this whole group that kind of needs to make a statement early, it's probably Eric Fetty. It's not to say that you know he can't still end up making the team, but he was already facing tougher odds than I think Joe Ross would be. And those odds haven't gotten any, any better based on these two outings. No doubt. Uh, while we're talking rotation, I know you updated this on MassInSports.com on Tuesday, but Max Scherzer with the left ankle looks like he'll make his spring debut Friday evening against the Cardinals. Is that right? Friday against the Cardinals. Strasburg should make his debut, I think, next Monday, if I'm remembering right. Corbin, it would seem like, would be over the weekend. Obviously, Lester is pushed back a little bit now. So they're they're starting to get to them. But here's the thing. And and another reason why you just have to be so careful not to read much of anything into spring training, box scores, especially in the first week. So far to this point in the spring, the following pitchers have thrown a combined zero innings for the Nationals. Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, Lester, Ross, Hand, Hudson, Rainey, and Harris. (laughs) None of them has appeared yet in a game. So I'm not real comfortable drawing a lot of conclusions about this pitching staff as a whole 
based on that. <laughs> Probably the safe way to go. Probably the safe way to play it, no doubt. All right, so we mentioned Carter Keboom. I thought this was really interesting the other day. It was revealed by the hitting coach, Kevin Long. I don't know if he meant to do this, didn't mean to do this, or whatever, but it turns out that Carter Keboom underwent laser eye surgery during the offseason. And this particular quote from Long cracked me up. Kevin says, He did some stuff with his eyes, and he's seeing the ball better. He's, he's not, like, squinting. Yeah, I mean, squinting would be kind of a bad thing <laughs> when you play baseball. It's amazing to me, Mark. You know, this happens in major pro sports where guys have to get their eyes fixed. The uh, The Washington football team went through this with Carlos Rogers years ago. We had one drop pick after another, leaves Washington, goes to the 49ers, and all of a sudden becomes an interception machine because he finally got his eyes taken care of. How does this happen <laughs> where a guy needs eye help, eye surgery, and he doesn't get it until he's been a player for a few years? I find that very odd. This has happened a few times in Nationals history. I go all the way back to Christian Guzman, who after hitting about 200 one season, had LASIK surgery, showed up next year, was an all-star. He hit over 300. Uh, Wilson Ramos did it as well. His big year that he took off as a hitter came after he had LASIK surgery. So there is a track record that maybe it can make a difference. I will say that as much as as easy it is to like blame the team on this or, and blame the players, as far as I know, Keboom did wear contacts. It's not like this guy was out there with, you know, 2200 vision or anything like that. He wore contacts. And I'm sure when he took eye exams, you know, it showed up as 2020 or something close to it. So it's not like we got a, you got a blind bat out there at third base. But as we've seen in baseball, especially in, in more recent years, any advantage you can get, especially with your eyes, makes a big difference. And these procedures now are good enough to get you way beyond 2020. Yep. They can get you to 2012. And uh, a lot of the big name guys have done that and almost electively have gotten LASIK, even though they don't, they don't necessarily need it medically. So let's see how this how this goes now. You would hope it might make a difference for him. It's unfortunate, I guess, that maybe it took this long to figure out, but if he felt like he wasn't seeing it as well as he could, and they said, you know what, we can do something to help make this better, then give it a try. Let's see. All right. So now we know on Keyboom, he's had LASIK surgery. He's changed his batting stance, holding the, the hands up higher. He's showing a lot of confidence. I mean, he's kind of put it all out there now. Now it's time to perform. Big, big year for Carter Keyboom, and I still go back to last offseason where Davey Martinez basically would tell anyone who would listen that the third base job was Carter Keyboom's, and then the actual season happened, and it turned out the third base job was not just Carter Keyboom's. We saw a lot of his Drupal Cabrera. I know Keyboom initially, I think he had like a groin injury or something at the beginning of the year, but it, it was a timeshare. I mean, like It wasn't like he was the everyday guy, and he struggled when he did play. I ended up, I remember optioning him to that alternate training side in Fredericksburg, which is essentially the equivalent of being sent down to the minors last year, during which, of course, there was no minor league season. You know, he struggled, of course, in 2019 in that initial call-up to the major league level. Although it was funny, I remember that year, his initial series against the Padres, he had a couple of home runs. It looked like he was off to this great start, and then he really cooled off. You know, they had him at shortstop. He had defensive struggles. Last year, he struggles offensively, although, interestingly, kind of seemed to be better defensively. And so here we are this year. The Nats, I mean, they didn't really add to their third base inventory. I know they re-signed Josh Harrison, but it kind of does feel like, again, the third base job is Carter Keybooms. Do you think that they are truly going to just put him out there and just let him sink or swim? Or do you think this could be another one of these short leash, you know, pull the plug quickly type scenarios with Keybooms? I think they have to put him out there and, and let him sink or swim because like you just outlined, what's the alternative? Is it Josh Harrison? You know, the only other thing they could do would be to call up Luis Garcia as a rookie and either play him at third where he doesn't have a whole lot of experience or now you're moving Starlin Castro over to third base. And that's not 
doesn't seem to me that's what their preferred uh, alignment would be. So they've boxed themselves into a little bit of a corner here, but I think they feel like it's time to put him out there and maybe take some of the pressure off in a way. It, sound, it sounds counterintuitive, but if you're taking third base on opening day and you know, man, if I get off to an 0 for 15 start, they're sending me down and it's over. That adds that pressure to you. And now you're thinking about that. And it feels like every day you're playing for your job. And I think what they want to do, at least in, in Keeboom's mind, is they want him to believe that he's not under pressure, that they have a complete faith in him and that he will be the guy uh, all the way through it. So I think they have to at least put him out there and start him. You know, obviously he'll have days off like everyone does, but basically he's an everyday third baseman for at least a month. And then maybe reevaluate at that point if it's not working and figure out where else you go. But I don't think it's good for anyone if he takes the field on opening day and, you know, within a week or two could already be in danger of losing his job. I don't think that's going to benefit anyone. You know, Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez, they keep saying there's a reason he was drafted as high as he was. There's a reason the scouts uh, have always believed, ironically, that he was going to be a much better hitter than he was a fielder. So they all see it there. They've seen it. They have reason to, to believe that 140 plate appearances isn't enough to make that judgment on. But it's put up or shut up time. And now we're going to find out if he is actually ready for it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. One thing that was really funny with Kiboom in 2020, so the batting average was just 202, which obviously isn't good. The slugging percentage was 212, which is putrid. But the on-base percentage was 344. He actually drew 17 walks, e- even with the squinty eyes. So <laughs> he got on base actually at a decent clip last season and hopefully can uh, continue that and do a whole lot more offensively in 2021. All right, uh, one more item before we get to our conversation with Ryan Zimmerman, and that is this, and it has to do with fans being allowed at Nationals Park. So nothing is set in stone right now. We should make that clear. But we did have the news on Tuesday that Washington, D.C., while it will be allowing the Nats to play their games at Nationals Park, and if you're saying, well, why does that even have to be a thing? It's because you still have the ban going on in D.C. on large gatherings due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But for now, D.C. is denying the Nats' request to allow a limited number of fans at games, though that could change. 
I know you can't see into the future, Mark, and I'm not sure that you have the ear of uh, Muriel Bowser or this guy Christopher Rodriguez, the D.C. Director of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, but any kind of sense on where this might be going? Are we going to have fans at Nats Park for that opening night game against the Mets? Well, here's what I know. The Nationals as an organization really want to have fans on opening night and for under, understandably why they would want that to be the case. And Nationals fans want to have the ability to be there on opening night and obvious why that would be as well. Here's what we also know. Over the last year, the District of Columbia, when compared to other cities around the country, has been much stricter in their closings and what they have reopened. They've been much slower than anyone else. They have their reasons for doing that. And for the most part, the district has been pretty good when it comes to COVID numbers, again, in relation to other places. They've done a good job, and I think they feel like uh, the restrictions they've had in place have played a big role in that. This is not a team decision. This is a city decision. The Nationals can make their case for it. They can outline what their plan would be to keep everyone safe, but ultimately, it is a team decision. Now, some teams have already, some states and, and, and cities have already announced their plans. Pennsylvania is allowing, I want to say it's 15% capacity. And so the Phillies and the Pirates can have it. The uh, uh, Ohio is opening uh, a percentage of fans. So the Reds and the Indians. Texas apparently is wide open for anybody who wants to go now. We'll see how that goes. My feeling all along has been that it will happen at some point, but that in all likelihood, DC is going to be behind most other cities when it comes to this. And they're probably not going to be bullied by the Nationals. This is going to be their decision based on what they think is right. One other point I want to make here. It's easy to say, well, hey, what's the big deal? You have you know, 5,000 fans scattered around the ballpark wearing masks in these little pods of families. Where's the danger in an outdoor stadium? That's all right. But remember that in order to do that, you also have to have a certain number of people who work at the stadium, concessions, security, cleanup crews, all those other people. And they're affected by these decisions. And have those people had the chance to get vaccines yet? Are they protected? So it is more than just about fans. It, there's a whole, you know, almost city worth of people who all come together to make a, a professional sporting event happen. And so this affects them. And I think that's what the, the District of Columbia is considering, not just however many fans would be there. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's a way to do it safely, even if you only have, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people. I think that there's kind of an irony to this story that came out the other day, because on the same day, you had President Biden saying the U.S. expects to have enough COVID-19 vaccine doses for every adult American by the end of May, two months earlier than anticipated. I mean, we are trending in the right direction. The cases have plummeted. The hospitalizations have plummeted. We're not out of the woods yet. Clearly, you got to stay vigilant. I think we all understand that. But I would hope you can figure something out to where you do it safely. People wear masks, you social distance, you protect the elderly, you protect, like you just said, the people who work at the stadium. And, you know, you can hopefully kick off the season with people there. It's interesting, too, Mark, you bring up D.C. and the extent to which it has been very conservative with COVID-19 restrictions. I remember this going into last year. I know you wrote about it. You know, it wasn't a given the Nats were going to be able to play their games at Nationals Park. That You had the Nats at one point exploring options, you know, places like Fredericksburg or playing in West Palm Beach, Florida, because it wasn't a given they could play their games at Nationals Park. Yeah, they were one of the last, if, if not the last team that was given permission to actually use their own stadium. I guess the Blue Jays were the one who were never given permission. They wound up in Buffalo. And this year, they're starting in Dunedin, Florida, in their spring training facility. So, yes, D.C. has been uh, at one end of the spectrum when it comes to this. And the... 
you know, let's also remember the uh, longstanding relationship between the district government and the nationals. There's a lot of issues there that have gone on for a long time. And I'm sure, you know, that's sort of the underpinnings of all this. And it's not just a simple uh, matter of this. There's some history there as well. You know, they did say they were going to come back in two weeks and make more of a final decision on this. I think the next two weeks, obviously, are going to be huge. Hopefully, the case numbers continue to go down, and that helps encourage it, and that it happens. Look, everyone wants there to be fans. We all do, of course, as long as it's done safely. As more and more people get vaccinated, it seems like it should be doable. And then I'm also just really interested, whether it's opening day, whether it's May, June, whenever, at what point do the Nationals start trying to have like those 2019 celebrations finally do they do it as soon as there's any fans in the park or do they want to wait until it's closer to a full house i think that's an interesting dilemma they're going to face at some point yeah it really is a shame how the nats were robbed of a season after a world series title i mean they just did not reap the benefits of any of that and you know i know they can do a celebration in 2021 but it's not the same i mean you're not the reigning defending champions it's better than nothing, but it really is a shame that, that you couldn't have that season of we're the champs, you know, you do a proper raising of the banner, you have jam-packed crowds. I mean, teams almost always get major attendance bumps and revenue bumps coming off championships. I mean, not that you have to set up a GoFundMe site for the learners, but like they're not, they didn't reap the benefits of that, you know, and it's just like, man, has there ever been a champion in baseball that got robbed of being a champion the way the Nats did. I mean, it, I think it's the truth. They, they, it's really a shame that that played out that way. No, there was a victory lap that every other team that wins a championship gets to have, and they did not have it. And it'll be fascinating to see what are the long-term effects of that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of franchises, they win a title, and there's a huge bump, like you said, the next year, and that carries over for a long time. Teams sell out for years after they win a championship because of the carryover effect. What's that going to be like here? I don't know. Um, I know that everybody with the Nationals feels the same way. They feel like they've been denied and robbed of something. Nobody's fault that it happened that way, but they absolutely have not been able to reap the benefits of something that basically every other team that ever wins a championship in any sport has been able to have. There's a great book for those of you listening to this called Diamond Dollars by this guy, Vince Gennaro, who was the president of Sabre. And he talks about how winning a championship, heck, just making the playoffs can be worth tens of millions of dollars to a baseball team, like real money that can impact your payroll, impact what you do with your infrastructure. And again, I mean, learners have a lot of money. We all get that. But it's like they weren't able to reap the benefits of that. So it's too bad. And Nationals fans weren't able to truly enjoy being World Series champions. All right. Well, a man who, of course, is a World Series champion and in terms of tenure, in terms of status, in terms of accomplishment, just may well be the greatest national of them all. We had a chance to talk with Ryan Zimmerman, and here's how that conversation went. Belted. Deep left center. The ball game is over. Ryan Zimmerman has delivered the happy ending for the Nationals in the first game in their beautiful new ballpark. Ryan Zimmerman with a game-ending home run. All right, so we as the Nats Chat Podcast, we're the newest Nationals podcast, and we are thrilled right now to welcome on the longest-tenured National. He is the franchise's all-time leader in home runs, hits, walks, RBI. He is Mr. National. He is Ryan Zimmerman, and it's great to have him on. Ryan, how are you, man? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's good to be back and uh, playing baseball and talking about baseball. 
Now, I know he just introduced you as the longest tenured national, and that's, of course, true. Nobody comes close to that. But I, this is one area that I can pull a little rank. I have more tenure than you. I don't work for the team, but I've covered the team from the beginning of 05. You were drafted in June. So I've got a couple months on you, and I feel like this is the one thing I can maybe lord over you, One of o- the only thing, because you've got plenty more you can lord over me. But here's what I was going to ask you along those lines. If I were have to said to you, you know, in June of 2005, when you were drafted, that 14 years later, you drafted as a third baseman, 14 years later, you'd be at first base in Houston celebrating as the Nationals won their first World Series title. In June 2005, what would Ryan Zimmerman have thought if he had heard that? Huh. Uh, well, you've been here longer than me and you created Facebook. So that's, that's right. pretty cool, too. Yeah. But other than that, no, I think... Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the coolest thing about sports is you really don't know what's going to happen. You don't know individually what your career is going to look like. You don't know, I guess, as far as success goes. You know, some guys play for 15 years in the big leagues or 15 years in the NFL, whatever it is, and have great careers individually. And for some reason, never really win championships or even get to go to the World Series or the Super Bowl or or things like that. So. I think that's what makes sports so interesting is you could be a really good player. You could be on really good teams. I think it shows you how much luck it takes, how many different variables are involved to get to the top of whatever sport you're playing. You know, all that being said, did I ever think I was going to play first base? No, but, you know, I think when you're young and you're coming out of college and it's very, you know, the very beginning, it's so hard to make yourself think of those things. I mean, looking back, and looking how my career has panned out, and you know, I think we've talked about it before. I don't, I wouldn't change a thing. The good things, the bad things, um, a lot of the injuries, all that. I think it all got me to that place in Houston. And I'm one of those guys who kind of thinks everything sort of happens for a reason. Playing for only the Nationals in your career, as you have, you know, doing the Cal Ripken thing, the Tony Gwynn thing, which is just so rare, not only in baseball, but just in all of sports right now. How important is that to you? How significant is it to you that you've only played for one franchise your entire career? Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. When you're younger, you don't really think about it. I think everyone would like, well, not everyone, people that have good experiences and enjoy playing, you know, in the city where they're at or the team, the organization. I don't think anyone ever really wants to leave. It's just, like you said, in this day, it's so hard because it takes the player and the organization to make it work. You know, with the amount of finances that get thrown around on both sides, you know, on the front office side and and the player side, it's just, it's hard to match those things up for an extended period of time. And then there's so many other roster decisions. And, you know, these guys are thinking three, four or five years down the road when they make free agent signings you know, next year in 2021 offseason, they'll be thinking about what, what's on the books in 24 or 25. So there's so many things that people don't think about go into those decisions. So, you know, I've been lucky to have a great relationship. Um, it's obviously close to where I grew up. I love the city and, uh, you know, I, I enjoy being here and I consider myself really lucky to be able to be here for this long. So I know you're not typically the one, the type to reflect and look at the big picture. You're kind of always focused on what's next and and you've got the challenge of that day ahead of you. But like all of us, we had tons of time last summer just to sit around and think about stuff. Did you find yourself as you sat at home going through that break, thinking more about what you'd been through, what might still be coming, reflecting a little more than you had in the past? Yeah, I would say a little bit, although I might have been 
shoot, I might have been busier at home than I usually am playing baseball. <laughs> it's it's hard work being home all the time. I, I mean, not that I didn't have respect for my wife and, and family that help out with the kids when I'm gone, but but yeah, I think it was cool to be home. I you know, I haven't been able to do things in the summer with with my family in, you know, decades. So it was interesting to have that freedom and that ability to do what we were allowed to do. I guess thinking back, I mean, you know, I didn't really kind of go way down the rabbit hole with that, but as far as kind of reliving that World Series and watching some of the games, and when you watch some of the games, they show highlights from from years past, and that kind of takes you back to certain moments in your career. So, yeah, I mean, I think I definitely thought about it more last year with the with the free time on my hands, but I also kind of thought about, like you said, the future as well, how being home and missing the game and not being able to be out there kind of made me realize that I still still want to do this for a little while. So along those lines, how quickly did you know that you were going to come back? Like, was it obvious right away that you, you were going to come back or did it take some time before you came to that conclusion? No, I mean, I think I kind of made the decision basically in my mind, knowing that I would, for the most part, come back the next year. If they wanted me to, you know, if it worked out, I guess is the best best way to answer that question. When I made the decision to to opt out, I didn't think like, I don't know what percentage, but a very high percentage of me thought that, you know, that's not the way it was going to end. So, I mean, it wasn't really a, a tough decision. I think, I guess we probably, Heather and I probably talked about it a little bit, but I think she also sort of knew that we made that decision knowing that that wasn't, wasn't the end. Having been with the Nats since that first season, 2005, as you have been, you've experienced it all. And of course, it's been great to see the run the Nats have had since 2012. But as we all know, things weren't always so great. When things were bad, like say that 06 through 2010 period, and you know you were putting up some big seasons during that time, how often, how much did it cross your mind of, man, you know, do I really want to stay here? You know, am I kind of being wasted here being this good of a player on this bad of a team? To what extent did you entertain the notion of playing elsewhere, especially in those early years? Yeah, I mean, I think I was just happy to be in the big leagues. That's, I mean, as a 21-year-old in 06, and, you know, I had a good group of veteran guys kind of just tell me to keep working hard, kind of speak when spoken to, I guess, is the best way. I mean, it's it's changed a little bit. You know, when you're a younger guy back then – you could do it. You could play, you could be yourself, you could do things like that. But I don't think the young guys were quite as outspoken as they are now. So, you know, those first four or five years, I mean, nobody likes to lose. We're all competitors. That's why we get to this level. But, you know, I was just honestly happy to have the opportunity to be in the big leagues at such a young age. So many guys have to kind of put a couple years in, in the minor leagues, even if they probably know, and even as the team kind of knows they're ready but I sort of fell into a good situation, a team that, you know, didn't really have many young prospects because they were owned by MLB. And they decided to kind of throw me up there and see what I got. And it just all worked out. So, I mean, I didn't really think about it just because I was so grateful to have the opportunity. Uh, The losing was tough and it got old, but I just tried to, you know, keep my head down and keep working and, and ultimately kind of continue to get better as a player. So when the tide did turn and we were ready to, to win as a team, I'd be I'd be that much better of a player. Was there a moment that you can think of, or w- when did you kind of sense that the tide was turning for the franchise? Was there a, a move that they made or a run you guys went on, started winning some games that you felt like, okay, I can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel here. We're, we're headed in the right direction. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to have the 
draft picks that we got when we had those picks, you know, to get basically Strass, Harp, and Rendon. You know, it's three pretty good, <laughs> pretty good guys to, you know, build your team around. But then we just started to kind of attract – I guess better better talent, you know. I mean, they they would actually go out and pursue people once the once we had a real ownership group here that was, you know, ready to get the new stadium kind of change change it. It seemed a little bit more legitimate once once the Learned family took over. I mean, you know, when MLB is running your team and there's not really much you can do. So for them to kind of when they bought the team, when we got the new stadium, when we had some of those young prospects draft picks kind of turn into legit big league players and then you start signing kind of some veteran guys that you know they're not the huge big name free agents but guys that can still play but can teach the young guys how to become professionals how to do things the right way I think so that's when it kind of started and everyone talks about that 2012 year where it was only it was supposed to be a year or two later that we were kind of supposed to turn the corner and that group of guys just had something special and we just kind of gelled and you know, that's one of the funnest years I think I've had. Obviously, nothing will top 19, but 2012 was a pretty cool year. You're going into a, what will be your sixth season as a first baseman. It's it's amazing, like, how quickly this passes. You know, obviously, we all knew of you as a third baseman. We saw you play in the outfield, now first base. Does first base feel like home? I, I mean, you've become a very good defensive first baseman. You know, I don't think people will ever forget the play in the NLCS and the Anibal Sanchez game. Hit by a pitch was a Rosarena, the pinch hitter. Here's a swing and a line drive. Caught by a diving Ryan Zimmerman to his right. What a play by Zimmerman leaving his feet. A headlong diving backhanded catch by 35-year-old Ryan Zimmerman. One away in the bottom of the eighth inning. How does it feel now with you at first and kind of that as your spot as it has been for years now? Yeah, definitely more comfortable. The first couple years were tough playing shortstop growing up and then third base, obviously for the bulk of my college career, it was hard to go to the other side of the infield. I think I've never had to catch a ball, turn to my right and throw a ball. So uh, the learning curve was pretty steep. I think everyone just assumes first base is an easy position. There's a lot of little things and stuff that you would never know unless you played first base. So the first couple of years were tough for me. I feel a lot more comfortable and I still feel like I can get better over there, but I feel like I've come a long way in those five or six years. And being on the other side, I know how nice it is to have a good first baseman over there. So I think that drives me to be even better. Um, you know, you make a bad throw, you, um, you know, you do something maybe that, you know, you wish you wouldn't have, and you have a guy over there that can sort of save you and pick you up. So Knowing how nice that is, I try and be that guy for, for them now, and I take a lot of pride in it. You're at first base and have been for a while, but the Nationals went out and got a big-name first baseman this winter in Josh Bell, and the plan going in is that he is going to start the bulk of the games. Uh, I know you're on board with that. Is that a tough thing when you reach that point in your career to accept that kind of change in a role? Or I feel like from having heard you talk about it, you're sort of embracing this idea of being more of a part-time guy, having a different role coming off the bench, and that there are different ways you can contribute that you haven't in the past. I think the biggest downfall for a lot of players is not being honest with themselves. And, you know, you have to continually adapt. And, you know, everyone, I wish I could still play 150 games every year and be who I used to be. And, you know, but, you know, the reality is I've had a hard time staying on the field. And, you know, it's not, it's not for lack of effort. 
I get my body ready to play every day coming into every single season. But for me personally, I think, you know, where I'm at in my career, you know, the, the biggest battle for me is when I play to be healthy, because when I'm healthy, I still think I can be a very effective and productive player. So we have to kind of find that sweet spot. And I think you sort of saw how they, how they did it with Howie the last couple of years, you know, how he played three, four, if he played five games in a week, that'd be a lot for him. And he could, you know, you could do it one or two weeks in a row or, and I feel like I could still do that, but at some point, you know, that it starts to wear on you a little bit. And it's not because we don't prepare ourselves. It's not, it's just where we are. So I think you have to be honest with yourself and I'm sort of looking forward to it. I think we talked about it earlier last week as well, how this was kind of supposed to be the plan going into last year. It wasn't just, you know, a guy like Josh and me, it was more of sort of three of us were going to kind of share, share and rotate through. And so that way everyone could stay fresh. I prepare myself if something happens and I have to play every day for two weeks or a month. I mean, I don't think I can't do that. I just think this is the better thing for not only for me, but for the team. And, you know, hopefully Josh can stay healthy and get back to what he did in 2019 and, and be the, the kind of impact bat that we need. And I'll, uh, I'll be there to kind of do whatever they need me to do. Ryan, one of the things we like to get into on this podcast is analytics, and we have a lot of fun with that. I'm just curious, with especially the way analytics have infiltrated Major League Baseball, do you like them? Do you uh, partake in them? Like, will you look at your own analytics and, you know, pay attention to what your war is or what your walk rate is or what your chase rate is? Or do you not care about any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think analytics have a place. I think analytics are also great excuses for people who don't want to take take responsibility for what they do. The computer can say whatever you want it, want it to say. So I think there is a place. I think analytics are useful. I mean, you know, you can use numbers to your advantage. You can use numbers to your disadvantage. You can also make numbers say whatever you want to say. I think baseball is one of the greatest sports because – you could be a really good baseball player. You can, you know, you could not be the best athlete on the field. You could not, you know, and you could be a really good baseball player and people don't know why you're a good baseball player. I think that was one of the things with our 2019 team was, you know, we were the oldest team, you know, we didn't have a lot of the greatest numbers and obviously our pitching was great, but you can't put veteran leadership or experience or, or that kind of stuff into an algorithm. And I think that has become so discounted in our game. And you see it, a lot of these teams that use the analytics, you know, they go younger, they platoon a lot of guys, and it's successful. I mean, you're not going to say the Tampa Bay Rays haven't been successful, but they also haven't won the World Series either. So I think it can get you to a certain extent. And then to get over that hump or to really win it, you have to have obviously superstar players. And I think you have to have team chemistry and you need veteran leadership and clubhouse guys to do that. We're running out of time here, but I'm just going to interject to say, as Al was asking you that question, I know our listeners can't see us. I'm smiling because I know your answer to this question. I've heard you refer to this before, and I know how your your thoughts on this, and Al will just have to, to deal with that. So, Al, why don't you wrap this up? That's how that goes. The analytics are kind to Ryan Zimmerman, as they should be. Ryan, we wish you great health. We wish you continued success, and thanks so much for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. All right. Good talking with you guys. Take care. So there you have it, our chat with Mr. National, Ryan Zimmerman. Not exactly a huge fan of diving headfirst into the numbers, but you know what? Most athletes aren't, and that's okay. He, he can be forgiven uh, for something like that. You know what? It's who he is. He's had a, what, 15-year career. Things have worked out pretty well for him. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, and Ryan Zimmerman is an old dog. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I hear him on that, and, and, and that's fine. I'm not lying, though, when I say the analytics are very kind to Ryan Zimmerman, and they do help you appreciate the player he's been, especially in those early years when the Nats were bad and a lot of people weren't paying attention to them. Like, if, if you look at Zimmerman through the prism of wins above replacement, 2009, 7.3 war for Ryan Zimmerman. That's MVP territory. Like, you have a, a, a 7 war, you're in the MVP conversation. The next year, 2010, a 6.2 war. Again, MVP territory. When the Nats were losing 90-plus a season, this guy was putting up monster numbers. So I, I just feel like, you know, you look at him that way, you say, man, he really was a tremendous player, and uh, I don't think we should ignore something like that. The other thing, too, and, and Mark, we, you know, we talked about this off the air a little bit, in terms of some of the stat cast stuff and, like, hard-hit balls, Zimmerman's been very good at that over the years. He, he, like, routinely has been one of the better guys, or at least he was for a period of time, in terms of hard-hit percentages. Yeah, you look at some of those years, you know, over, like, the last five years, there were some of those times when the the traditional stats did not look good and people would say, man, can this guy play anymore? Uh, he shouldn't be out there every day. And when you looked at the stat cast numbers, his hard hit rate was about as high as anyone in the league. He was always up there. There was a stretch I remember where he was just pounding the ball into the ground, hard hit balls into the ground every night and hitting a double plays and that was killing them, uh, killing rallies. But I think that, you know, the Nats have some smart people, some analytics people who work for them. And they looked at that and said, you know what? Give him time. That is a sign that he's hitting the ball hard. He just needs to elevate it a little bit. And all of a sudden, some of those uh, hard grounders turn into line drives and the line drives turn into home runs. And, you know, something that I've always seen from him in his career that when you know he's going well is when he can take an outside pitch and drive it to right center field off the wall for a double, even over the fence for a homer. That's when he's really at his best. And, and it's often you can kind of see it coming in stages. You see the hard ground balls first, then you see the line drives as he starts to pull it, and then you start seeing him hit that outside pitch. So he may not think a lot about it, but the numbers do back it up. And, and whether he believes it or not, it, it is actually helping him. And it's probably helped keep him in the lineup a lot over his career. Yeah, Zimmerman, for each of three straight years, 2015 through 2017, was in the top 10% of all of baseball in hard hit percentage, was in the top 10% in all of baseball in exit velocity. Like year in and year out, uh, the guy was smoking balls. So we thank Ryan Zimmerman very much for joining us. We thank you for being a part of this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet the show at Nats underscore chat on Twitter. And don't forget, you can email us. You want to be a part of the show, a supporter of the show, advertising inquiries. Hit up our guy, Tim Shovers, Podcast at gmail.com. We'll talk to you again soon. Good to see you again, Dr. Fauci. How have you been? I'm fine, Zim. Nice to see you. Are you more nervous to throw out the first pitch? Or have you been more nervous over the last three or four months dealing with everything that you've you've had to deal with? Have you thrown a first pitch out before at a big league stadium? I have not, Zim, and I'm quite nervous about it. <laughs> okay, well, don't worry about it. If you bounce it, there's nobody there to boo you, so you'll be good to go. You're you're fine. You're good. So this is the perfect first pitch. You're good. You're, you're easing into it. If- 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.